So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. at the audience this oh, i sound like one of those I sound like one of those science presenters for kids oh yeah i'm yelling at the children <laughs> put your beaker over the flaming nitrous oxide kids and just watch this magical miracle of nature just unfold before your eyes oh that chemical reaction has gotten too large to me i'm gonna have to cap that one off where was i i think you were welcoming people to oh, the show no, you're talking too loud this is the Green Majority, Canada's most unwieldy environmental <laughs> news hour. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station or on your podcast app, perhaps on the Harbinger Network. And we've got Stefan Hostetter. That's true. We have Lauren Latour. Yeah, you do. And we have myself, David Hostetter. And we have oodles of environmental news. And Stefan will be interviewing Mr. Michael Polanyi. Yeah, correct. it is. From Nature Canada. Yes. About a report they've put out uh, about how logging in Canada is as bad as the oil sands. Yeah, the report is called Lost in the Woods. In terms of emissions. Exactly. Correct? Yes. Is that all you're talking about? We also talk about how... Public policy is hard to make when the government doesn't really want to tell you how many emissions they've created because the government of Canada doesn't actually provide a simple number. Like Nature Canada had to go out and do a whole bunch of work to actually create this number because the federal government doesn't like telling you how much logging creates <laughs> and so hides it in ways that it doesn't hide most other industries. And that interview will be coming up soon after climate international climate policy news. And before that, Lauren has discovered that the resource minister, federal federal resource minister, Mr. Jonathan Wilkinson, was speaking at the Canadian Club in Toronto. Yeah, which from what I understand has no affiliation to the whiskey company. Yeah, I think what the Canadian Club is. Well, what we have surmised is that they are a club for rich people to have access to other influential rich people. Anyway, he gave this speech that I'm not going to lie, full disclosure, did not read the whole thing. It's something like 15 pages and I have episodes of Love is Blind to watch. So I'm not spending my time reading that. Um, but the uh, was it the National Post Financial Post did a good little summary of his speech the other day. And there's just there's a couple there's a couple quotes that jumped out at me as being especially trash. Now, Jonathan Wilkinson, I'm not going to lie, isn't a minister I think about all that much, despite the fact that he is relevant to a lot of the things that we talk about and I'm interested in and and tangentially, though I don't talk about my job on this show that I work on. Um, so Jonathan Wilkinson, for those that might be that might have forgotten or confused, used to be the Minister of Environment and Climate Change Canada after Catherine McKenna, but before, ooh, pardon me, but before the job was passed off on to Stephen Gibo. He is now the Minister of Natural Resources, like Dave said, and generally speaking, not somebody I think of as like a capital B bad dude. Um, he does seem to be primarily motivated by facts and by science and by good information and he's a bit of a nerd and isn't too flashy and just kind of wants to like put his head down and get the job done and and generally speaking I think of him as a somewhat maybe not like the best dude in the world but like a relatively benign figure in cabinet he's not like a Christia Freeland he's also not like a Stephen Gibo who generally speaking is like attempting to push for the right things he kind of just sits in the middle for me, but he 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 made a couple comments in this again albeit very lengthy speech that I did not read all of 
And the, the, the first one that kind of threw me for a loop is people can expect that fossil fuel consumption will continue at its current rate through the next decade or longer, and that fossil fuel production can also continue until 2050, so long as we stop burning them and use technology to capture associated emissions. Now, I believe that was paraphrased. I don't think that's word for word a quote, like a direct quote from the speech, but it was like paraphrasing the essence of it. And like, that's something that kind of like jumps out to me and freaks me out a little, because although he's not the minister in charge of like fossil fuels or in charge of climate change, the way, uh, or climate action, rather the way Stephen Gibo is, he is the minister who's, who's in charge of regulating the fossil fuel and oil and gas industry. And if he, as this main figure is, is seemingly unconvinced that this is uh, an industry that's going to have to significantly ramp down production in the next decade. I'm sorry. I like it's 2030 is the year that we all have in our heads. That's, that's incredibly disconcerting. And then especially when, when he references, or at least when the reference, when the article references that he stated that fossil fuel production can continue until 2050, so long as we stop burning them and use technology to capture associated emissions. So what we're going to, all of this CCUS is all of a sudden going to ramp up in the next couple decades to mean that we're completely offsetting our emissions from the fossil fuel industry. And this implies to me as well, that if we're not burning them, that we're still producing fossil fuel byproducts like plastic, which again, like what happened to the government that is like going to tackle ocean plastics and, and plastic waste anyway. So that was the first one that freaked me out. And I say freaked out. I'm not like, clutching my pearls here it's just like for the love for the love of god john get like get your give give your head a shake as my father would say the second one is the cause of climate change is not fossil fuels themselves it is carbon emissions associated with the production and the combustion or burning of fossil fuels and that i do believe is a direct quote and that's one of those things where it's like i'm sorry that's like saying covid doesn't kill people shortness of breath kills people like you know what like it's Maybe the fossil fuel itself sitting in a sitting in a bowl on my countertop isn't going to cause climate change. It only happens if I like light the bowl of oil on fire. But it's that is such an I'm sorry, it's asinine. It's such an asinine statement, especially to be making in a room of people. Clearly, he he's catering his comments to the room, which I mean, like, yeah, we all do. I get it. But it's I'm I'm so disappointed in, in you, Jonathan, if you're listening and again, it's incredibly disconcerting when I'm sorry, he's supposed to be in charge of regulating this industry. And instead, he's clearly kowtowing to it and, and objectively promoting it. Anyway, I'm cranky. And as I would say, especially out of touch, given A, we're coming up to COP and the EU is, is, is planning on trying to get its members countries to develop a fossil fuel nonproliferation treaty. If the EU signed on to the non-proliferation treaty, that would be obviously their biggest get yet. It would be absolutely huge, and it would be one of it would be looked back on as a, a critical plank towards truly taking climate change seriously. You know, it's like one of these things that is still definitely uh, down the road. It's still, definitely a lot of work to actually make that happen. But setting that intention and fulfilling that intention would be astronomically big news and good news for the climate. And the second piece of good news that's coming out of the EU. And it's not getting as much play on sort of climate circles, but it may be even bigger news. And it's one that there's a lot to be done, and I think it's a fair amount of uh, reason to be cautious in our optimism. But that said, multiple EU countries, including France, Spain, Poland, and the Netherlands, have all indicated that they would, they would like to get out of the Energy Charter Treaty. And if you haven't heard of this Energy Tar Charter Treaty, that's very common. I think probably very, very few people outside of the people specifically in these industries probably have actually heard of it. But it is one of these things that is actually cementing our lives into, you know, fossil fuel exploration because it's one of these treaties that's been around since the early 1990s that allows fossil fuel companies to sue countries whose policies might impact their profits. So even I think in the last year or two, some German companies sued the Netherlands for trying to get off coal. So while the EU commission is still trying to keep this together and keep countries moving forward, a whole bunch of other EU countries are also considering moving this way, including Germany and, and a few others. And so if you saw the EU as a collective, or even honestly, if Germany, Poland, the Netherlands, Spain, and France all left, that's a huge amount of money and a huge percentage of the EU economy. If they were all to leave this charter, that is a significant breaking, I think, of some of the sort of like 
chains that the fossil fuel industry holds on the decisions and policies we might be able to make. And so it's fascinating to see a world where the EU is making some of these claims about, no, we want to sort of shake ourselves off of this. We want to find ways to be energy independent and do other things while us, us here in Canada are you know, going to the Canadian club and saying, well, we just think we can keep burning oil forever and then it will be fine. The third quote that I that that I'd highlighted but hadn't brought up yet, but is again just totally flies in the face of, of what you're talking about with with the EU is again direct quote um, from Wilkinson at this speech. Europe has also asked us to look at how Canada could potentially assist with LNG, liquefied natural gas, and hydrogen from Eastern Canada, which is why we've established active working groups with both Germany and the European Union. So again, he's trying to offer this scenario whereby we provide Germany and the EU with liquid natural gas via pipelines bringing it across the country and then exporting it to Europe, which uh, A, contradicts what we heard from Trudeau contradicts what we heard from the German chancellor back in August, I believe, if I'm not misspeaking, and also like contradicts what we've heard from Guibault as well. So it's like, sorry, like, which is it? Which is it? Are we making progress here? Are we like, is the EU making efforts to move off of fossil fuels? Or uh, are we bolstering up this industry for another 30 years and helping it and, and hoping it succeeds, crossing our fingers, hoping it succeeds, so we don't completely lose all our money? I don't, I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. It just feels like somebody's lying. Don't know who, but someone. What do you guys make of the comments that Wilkinson also made being like, you know, we can use all this oil, but we're not going to burn it. We we'll use it for lubrication, asphalt, solvents, and we'll use natural gas not to burn it either, but to like make hydrogen or something. With natural gas, even if you're not burning it, like half of the problem, maybe not half, but a decent chunk of the problem with natural gas is that it's it like is is you've got like fugitive emissions. You're not even burning them, but it's still like leaking into the atmosphere. So in terms of like what is it, blue hydrogen that's powered from quote unquote renewable natural gas? No, still damaging, still a bad thing, still utilizing a fossil fuel. And then like, yeah, sure, maybe, maybe in 15, 20 years, we're, we're still using petroleum products for things like asphalt, but I would have to imagine a that we'd be working to come up with viable alternatives and b like asphalt does not an entire industry make you know what I mean like that's not that's not what's propping up the Canadian oil and gas industry right now and if the Canadian oil and gas industry thinks that they're going to like make it through the next century on I don't know plastic takeout containers and asphalt like who are you kidding here that actually goes back to like one of the a question we had in the show, honestly, now I think seven or eight years ago that I've never got a good answer for, which is how much would plastic cost if it wasn't being sort of subsidized by oil exploration? And I, I think that that central question leads me like, maybe this is possible, but you're right. It's not a whole industry. And how quickly do other alternatives that aren't, say, in our bodies and bloodstreams like plastics are now would be available to us if it wasn't so much cheaper to use this thing that we sort of get as a byproduct of the burning goal, which is for a vast percentage of how oil is used, right? And and it's like, not that I'm like, not, not that I'm necessarily like team metal straw or whatever, but like, <laughs> There's an argument to be made for the fact that like one of the reasons, not the the prominent only reason that we've had such a hard time weaning ourselves off of oil and gas is like as, as fuel sources has been hard is because like, yes, societally from an economic standpoint, we're kind of like we're, we're, we're propped up by it. Our vehicles, our homes, our businesses, whatever are heated and run off of this fuel. But like it wasn't that long ago that plastic polymers like weren't a huge, weren't the primary material we were dealing with. Like it was less than a century ago that we were primarily reliant on like natural rubbers, metal, glass, paper products. Like there, there, are, there are alternatives we can easily turn to doubly. So when you consider like the leaps and bounds that we have made from a technological standpoint and that like, there's a whole, like there are lots of very brilliant people working very hard to develop alternative um, materials for us to utilize. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank Every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. 
and I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. are back with the green majority and moving on now to climate news all right are you are we good sure let's do it the institute for energy economics and financial analysis put out a major report about the financial case for fossil fuel divestment the executive summary makes the points this is going to be a long quote here Politics now drives oil and gas prices, with the war in Ukraine serving as a vivid reminder of this stark reality. The oil and gas sector's promised technological innovations, such as carbon capture and sequestration technology, remain unproven, unreliable, and unprofitable. Faced with competition from sustainable economics, the strategies and tactics of the fossil fuel sector are now largely political, since the industry has lost its financial rationale. As coronavirus vaccines and public health initiatives allowed the world economy to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, supply and demand imbalances increased oil and gas prices. Then Russia's invasion of Ukraine triggered a series of market bottlenecks that drove prices soaring. It also created an energy distribution network driven by support or opposition to Russia's goals of aggression. The results have been significant revenue increases for all oil and gas producers, including state-owned enterprises and private oil concerns. The high prices have contributed to worldwide inflation, placing extraordinary pressure on developing countries with growing economies. Death and destruction are at the root of rising revenues. ExxonMobil, for example, saw its revenues during the 2010s drop to the low $200 billion level after hitting more than $400 billion consecutively for several years. With the Ukrainian invasion, its revenues are back up and may reach $400 billion this year. Yet despite the political crisis that led to the recent spikes, the market fundamentals for oil and gas remain weak. No one can say how the Ukrainian conflict will end or predict the political realignments that will occur in its wake. For investors seeking a steady, stable investment, fossil fuels are an unreliable option. Weak economic performance and an unstable future for fossil fuels have made it clear that divestment can be achieved without financial harm to any individual investment fund. Divestment is a defensive tool employed to protect investors from the loss of value, losses as certain as climate change's global reach. Chevron CEO Mike Wirth said back in June, quote, My personal view is that there will never be another new refinery built in the United States. Uh, You're looking at committing capital 10 years out that will need decades to offer a return for shareholders in a policy environment where governments around the world are saying we don't want these products. The G20 collectively subsidized fossil fuels last year more than they ever had before. Rural communities in Alberta are cutting staff and suspending infrastructure repairs because oil and gas companies are not paying their property taxes. Earlier this year, the Alberta government admitted it had failed to make oil companies pay $235 million in outstanding taxes. Mark Brooks, writing for the World Wildlife Fund, argued a couple months ago that new oil and gas exploration laws for the East Coast were too lax to prevent a huge spill. The World Wildlife Fund's Living Planet Index has found that there are 69% fewer wild animals today than in 1970. A new report from Influence Map has found that the industry groups responsible for killing all these trillions of creatures are trying to block almost all policies and regulations that would help. 
and Greenpeace USA put out a report recently finding that there is no plastic product that meets an accepted industry standard of recyclability. The standard states that an item is recyclable if it's actually recycled at least 30% of the time. The report finds that this problem can't be fixed with better systems for collecting since the products themselves remain more expensive to recycle than to destroy and replace with new plastic. Putting together those, you know, these stories about the oil economy and the ways that it both remains in some ways all-powerful and in other ways totally collapsing, I struggle to come up, come up with a coherent vision for the path forward. Because, you know, in some ways we are living through Schrodinger's oil economy. It is both dead and very much alive at the same time. As the study you mentioned first points out, the oil industry has lost its financial rationale. Executives within the oil industry itself are struggling to believe that it has any real future. Countries around the world are increasingly seeing that relying on it as a national security threat with the EU, with Russia and the United States, with Saudi Arabia, very clearly cutting production to, to up gas prices right before the midterms as an attempt to tip the scales in the U.S. elections there. And even within countries, it's fast becoming more of a blight than a boon, whether that's refusing to pay taxes to local governments or abandoning oil wells or poisoning those who those near its operations. It's boom-bust cycles constantly requiring new government money and then siphoning off profits when times are good. So in all sane worlds, we would be experiencing and preparing for the demise of, of oil. Yet, we also live in a world where... Treaties, like the one I discussed earlier, exist to protect these companies from losing money, where governments are so captured that they will continue to subsidize oil to the tune of billions of dollars while declaring that we, need to, that we are, in fact, moving away from it, where the power of having access to cheap oil allows countries such leeway that they can murder journalists for all the world to see and still have access to weapons to export their oppression elsewhere where it seems like most climate-related stories or newsletters produced by mainstream outlets are funded by an oil company, which has its propaganda sitting right at the top. It can feel unrelenting, invincible, and if you follow any of the trackers for how much lobbying they do of governments, you can see why. And so, something has got to give, right? History tells us that powerful industries can and do fail, but getting off oil can't be something that we take our time with. It needs to happen at an unprecedented speed. And so, for me, that's why I get back to the comments made by Wilkinson off the top. Because, I mean, compromise? Compromise with who? Compromise for who? All we are capitulating to is the power of a dying industry, and all we will earn with compromise is more death. But to you, Lauren. You, you talked about sort of like, being unclear about what the path forward is. And I mean, I think at least the three of us and all, and, and our listeners and our friends and our, our comrades, dare I say, um, we understand what the path needs to look like moving forward. But I'm going to be honest, a lot of the time, especially this week, living in a city where we had an opportunity to elect a really incredible progressive candidate, or what we saw with Anjali and talked about last week, or what we saw with the Vancouver municipal elections, like it's, it's hard to see how we are coherently and meaningfully moving forward on the path that we need to be, despite the fact that there are a lot of people working really hard. And, and in positions of power, there do seem to be a significant number of people who like quote unquote get it um and yet yeah we we have we have the the ceo of chevron saying as as david quoted earlier there will never be another new refinery built in the united states and because you're you have to commit capital 10 years out and then it takes decades for return like so like when 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 you as the ceo of chevron know this to be true and understand that it's like to use a phrase that like has has maybe been kind of like beaten to death but like it's it's a stranded asset then why are you not all working harder and faster to more meaningfully turn this ship around when you have a ceo of one of the most powerful wealthy companies in the world who gets it then why aren't the rest of us act like why aren't we acting accordingly and it's it's that that disjointedness that baffles me a lot yeah. of the time I often say that the Financial Post, for all how right-wing it is and how it literally still publishes climate denial or has in the recent past, 
it also will publish some of the most damning articles about the future of the oil sands because it's a business paper. And just if you look at the numbers at some point, it's not going to make economic sense. And that point is coming much quicker, you know, especially as we ramp up electric vehicles and other ways to, you know, alternative fuels. And everyone sort of knows, and yet no one is really willing to start moving somewhere else quickly. You know, the conversation off the top of these treaties, right? Like, I don't think we totally understand also the ways in which these treaties and these uh, agreements and these sort of supply chain, that how connected everything is, is so complicated to undo. Like, the original offer for the, e- the EU was trying to get people to agree with was that they could leave... Uh, was that they would remove fossil fuels from the agreement that they had because the Energy Charter Treaty doesn't actually only include fossil fuels. It includes uh, all energy, so it includes renewable energy as well. And so there was some push to just remove fossil fuels from the treaty. And the agreement there that was sort of pushed forward was, well, what if we said we do that in 10 years? So, like, you guys can be – in 10 years we'll remove that, and then that will be fine. That's how we'll deal with this. And the response from some of these countries was like, no, we're leaving now. Um, but like trying to leave also has a whole bunch of litigation involved. So like I, I, do, I think part of it is that everyone knows, as you said, not even just those of us who are, are engaged. I think the oil industry also knows where we're headed very clearly. Like they will they'll admit it to themselves or in small ways, but then they go back to their investors and will say, oh, we're actually fine forever. And then they'll get, you know, Jonathan Wilkinson at the Canadian Club being like, we actually don't even need to burn oil to make it still totally useful. And all of these things are just prop, propping up this industry that is is really hollowed out, but we just cannot imagine a different future. No, well, and and it's also, I feel like it, it strikes me as like the most cynical game of chicken in the world because it's like, I will cling on to this for as long as possible. I will like, I don't know, it's it's like, what was I watching recently? Some, some, some silly horror movie where it's like two people in cars driving towards each other. And like the last one to pull away is like the winner or whatever. And it's like, people are willing to stay in that runaway fossil fuel car driver seat for as long as they possibly can, because the, the belief is that as long, like you can still eke out those few more dollars. It's almost like my, my very basic rudimentary understanding of game theory is like the same thing that keeps us from dying in nuclear war is the same thing that keeps us from moving on climate and it's the idea that like I will if you will and I won't if you won't and until somebody moves nobody's gonna move and it's like I guess in some ways I'm grateful that that that's the way like like geopolitics works because I'd rather not die in nuclear winter but at the same time I really need somebody to like push the climate nuclear button in, in a few places, I've done little things, but like every time something comes up or someone says, oh, this next thing's going to be big, I feel like a year or two later, you kind of, it fizzles. No, exactly. It's, it's, it's all of the amazing pledges that get, that get made every year at COP that never actually translate into really ambitious policy or legislation. It's yeah. like, it's somebody saying, yes, we're finally going to put money towards loss and damage. And it's like, oh, really? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're already, it's going to come out of the existing pot for climate finance, but like technically, yeah, you can use it for that if you want to. Like it's anyway, it's silly and we're running out of time. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and as previewed earlier on the show, we are here with Michael Polanyi, the Policy and Campaign Manager for Nature Canada for Nature-Based Climate Solutions, talking about a report that just came out a couple weeks ago. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Stephen. So interestingly, this report starts with a very simple question, which is, what are the greenhouse gas emissions from logging in Canada? Which, to my understanding is a question that almost for every other industry is not something you need to write a report about. It's something you Google and then you know immediately. And yet, apparently, this isn't something that's very easy to get an answer to. Can you tell us why that is? Well, you're right on the mark. For people who follow climate change, Canada releases a greenhouse gas inventory every spring and 
pretty clearly indicate emissions from most sectors, oil sands, transportation, agriculture. But the reporting around forests and logging is very convoluted. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to write this report and answer that question. What are logging emissions? Because as our report shows, the government talks about combined net flux from forest land and complicated terms like that, but they don't actually transparently report the emissions that can reasonably be associated with industrial logging in Canada. And that's a big problem for Canada's climate plan. Yeah. Let me just dive into talking about how you actually came up with this number. A big portion of this report is looking into actually how you came across the number and sort of providing the data behind the number so you can really stand behind it. So how did you go about that work and what did you come to? So even though Canada doesn't kind of at the top line level in its climate report say logging causes X emissions, if you dig into different reports, background tables, if you contact Environment Canada and ask for missing data, which we did, you can calculate the net emissions that are associated with logging in Canada. And basically, we calculated that number based on three numbers. So we, we took the total amount of carbon that's removed from the forest each year, because a ton of wood obviously is moved, removed from forests, that wood contains carbon. And then we subtracted the amount of carbon that goes into long-lived wood products. Uh, like furniture, because that carpet is stored. It doesn't go to the atmosphere immediately. And then we also subtracted the carbon that's sequestered by trees that logging companies replant, saplings that are replanted in logged areas. So really from those three numbers, we calculated logging emissions. And the striking result was that logging emissions, emissions associated with logging, are on par with emissions associated with all of Canada's oil sands operations, about 10% of Canada's total emissions. So logging is actually one of the biggest emitting sectors in Canada, which often people don't think it is. So that's quite a significant finding, which we think has huge implications for climate policy and forest policy. Well, yeah, especially because Canada so often wants credit for its forests on the international stage, right? Like time and time again, you hear Canada going to these like COP27, which is upcoming, with the idea that we are actually a carbon sink because we have these whole forests. But if our logging industry is creating that much emissions, that really puts a dent in that argument. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's... I think a lot of myths about logging in Canada, there's the myth that logging is sustainable. There's the myth that if you cut down old trees and replace those trees with saplings, somehow the carbon, the carbon balance, it will be sort of, it will balance out that logging will be low carbon. But I mean, people have to remember that in Canada, about half a million hectares of forests, mostly primary forests are clear cut every year. So just for scale, that's the equivalent of logging six NHL hockey rinks every minute. And so this huge area is being logged and um, it's, it's just not possible to log that massive area of carbon rich forests and to end up with a, a kind of carbon neutral industry. And what we're hoping that our report does is it's clearly communicate that to the public that the logging sector is, is a big emitter, that Canada needs to acknowledge that, and that Canada needs to put in place policies to reduce emissions from the logging sector, just as it's putting in place policies to reduce emissions from the oil sand sector, from agriculture sector, from transportation. So that's what we're hoping for. Yeah. And to jump back for a second to the Canadian government, is do they give a reason why they don't provide the sort of overarching number for logging? Like, is there an explanation given or is it just absent? Well, Canada's not alone, it should be said, in terms of uh, 
calculating and reporting logging emissions in a convoluted way. The UN does have this category called L land use, land use change and forestry. That's kind of a catch-all for this sector. So countries are allowed to kind of report land use as a kind of amalgamated category. But we feel that, you know, Canada sees itself as a leader in terms of climate policy. It sees itself as a leader in terms of forestry. And we feel that Canadians very much want transparency when it comes to reporting emissions. And accurate and transparent reporting of emissions is critical to effectively addressing the climate crisis. So, so Canada could say, well, you know, we're just doing what other countries do, but we don't think that's good enough. We think Canada should be a leader and that Canadians expect transparency when it comes to the climate impacts of the logging industry. Yeah, for sure. And so just so I can be 100% certain, it sounds like one of the outcomes of what you've laid out here is that Canada should be losing forests. Is that true? Like, are we slowly becoming a less forested country because of these changes? We are losing primary old growth intact forests. There are fewer and fewer intact areas that are of a significant size in the world. And Canada has some of the largest remaining intact forests. But yes, you're right. There is every year there is a net loss of these primary forests, areas that haven't been logged before, large areas, uh, cumulative areas of Canada's forests are being lost. And that's one of the implications. I mean, I mean, I think that there's biodiversity reasons to protect primary forests that haven't been logged before, and there are climate reasons to protect these forests. And what we're hoping is that Canada will recognize that this intensive and expansive logging of primary forests is having a huge impact in terms of climate emissions, that it will put in place policies to incentivize more sustainable forestry. So that means shifting where we log, shifting away from logging these hugely valuable old growth forests. It means changing the way we log. So shifting away from clear cutting, which is very destructive from both a climate and a biodiversity perspective towards more selective logging. And it also means not logging old growth forests for wood that is just burned or for wood that is turned into short-lived products like tissue paper, which could be made from recycled materials, right? So, so there's lots of options for building a more sustainable forestry industry. There's, there's great market demand worldwide for forest products that are logged in a way that respects indigenous rights, that doesn't harm primary forests. So really, the problem is Canada, the Canadian government hasn't put those incentives in place to encourage and require the logging industry to, to shift towards a more low-carbon, nature-friendly approach. Right. So you sort of answered my follow-up question there, which was, you know, what could the Canadian government do to aid the process of reducing logging emissions? And so it sounds like there are some standards and some stuff they could do. Yeah. I mean... We make recommendations in our, in our policy report. And the first is just be clear, you know, report clearly what are the logging emissions associated, you know, every annually. So just report that. And then second is put in place an action plan to reduce those emissions. And one thing that that would mean is just as there's a carbon price on large emitters when they burn natural gas or fossil fuels, there should be a carbon price on large emitters when they burn wood products, right? Because that's releasing carbon, just like burning these other fuels is releasing carbon. And right now they're exempted from that carbon price. So, so that's, you know, an immediate step the government could put in place that would incentivize the reduction of the combustion of wood. It would incentivize logging companies to to log in ways that don't emit as much carbon. So that's something that definitely could be done as well. So those are a couple of our key recommendations. I'm curious how 
it, it, maybe you don't have an answer to this question. So I will accept a, you, a lack, but I'm curious if there are places around the world that are doing this better. You know, are there other jurisdictions even, even within Canada or around the world that we could look to that have stronger forest management practices? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think that, you know, Canada has lagged behind other countries. We're actually doing a, a review right now of how other countries count and report logging related emissions and forest related emissions. So we haven't completed that yet. But what we are starting to find is that Canada, while it claims to be a leader, is falling behind other jurisdictions, both in the way that it accounts for carbon and in its failure to protect intact and primary forests. And I, I can go into details about that, but, but it's partly the way that Canada measures progress in terms of emission reductions. It, and it's partly this real bias and unbalance in Canada's reporting, whereby on one hand, Canada doesn't report emissions, doesn't count emissions from wildfires, right? Because it says, well, wildfires are natural. You know, we don't have control over that, so we're not going to report that. But then Canada takes credit for a vast amount of carbon sequestration by trees that are naturally regrowing after wildfires, right? So, so that's, and that's something fairly unique globally is, is this real skew in the way that Canada is kind of minimizing the emissions, but then taking credit for a carbon sink. And in that way, they're hiding effectively the massive emissions associated with logging. So, and that we are convinced does not abide by guidelines for reporting. Canada's not in compliance. So yeah, uh, it's a good question. What are we doing internationally or more work needs to be done on that? But I think preliminary evidence is that Canada's falling behind other countries. Yeah, that's really interesting I, I, because I feel like that really creates the opportunity for abuse in some ways, you know, like specifically because so often when you talk about net zero, which I put in quotes, it relies on sort of these carbon sinks that we've come up with. And time and time again, the the carbon sinks end up having these weird accounting loops, right? Like one of my big fears about us about really highlighting net zero as a goal is that we could sort of succeed into failure. All of us could create all these fancy accounting mechanisms that tell ourselves that we are actually, oh, look, every country in the world is net zero and yet somehow emissions keep rising. And it would be because of these kinds of things, right? Like, oh, well, we can't be blamed for a wildfire, but new stuff that grows is definitely a carbon sink. Like that kind of thinking will doom us ultimately, right? It's, the, it's one of the biggest question marks I have about considering these sort of negative emissions as in any way that would allow for further creation of fossil fuels or use of fossil fuels. Yeah, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. The, the accuracy and the transparency of reporting of carbon emissions and removals. And it's, it's a huge problem in forests as we have found. I know other environmental colleagues have talked about the problem exists with peatlands, uh, the massive, you know, as the permafrost is melting, there's massive emissions happening and the government's not doing a good job kind of measuring those emissions. I, I know there have been articles about government under government and industry understating actual emissions from oil sands operations as well. So there's all this, you're right, there's, there's a real risk that uh, without proper accountability, without verification of emissions, the, the kind of hidden incentive is for countries to, in every way they can, minimize and reduce what they report and maximize and overstate the sequestration that's going on and, and take, to take credit for sequestration that's happening naturally and to use that as a justification for continuing to emit. So it's, it's a huge problem, Stefan, really it is. And we hope that our report will be a small step to increase transparency of emissions and removals in, in the logging sector, the forestry sector. Yeah. Yeah. To, I, we had a question on Twitter a couple of weeks ago about how someone could, re, could offset their emissions from flying. And I 
had to answer honestly. I had to be like, look, I don't know if there's any type of offset right now that I would consider good enough to really justify, you know, like if you want to fly, I understand you and you have to fly, that's fine. But I don't think it's a very dangerous stepping stone to start thinking that you can offset them in these ways because, you know, even some of the the most highly regarded ones, some of the work that, you know, California did with its within its carbon market ended up lighting on fire. And yeah, you can't blame them for that, but that's still those emissions that someone got to admit. Now it's double, if not triple emissions because the sequestration is now lit on fire and now you have, you know, and these are the things that I think we can't really get out of without really being confident in our accounting. And our accounting for climate, even as you see, like this report, I think itself shows, is really hard. And if the and governments are very happy to do a relatively poor job of it, if it helps keep them not to be held accountable, you know, and being able to count in some of the work that you're doing here to hold them to account is going to be so necessary if we're really going to actually start reducing emissions because we can have all of the great technology in the world, but if we don't know what the problem is, which I think is really a big part of our issue right now globally, we're in, we, well, we can succeed our way into failure. And that really, as you said, is scary. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right <laughs> that if we base our climate policies on a false calculation of emissions, then we're not going to make progress. And and that's what we're doing in the, the logging sector right now. The governments and industry are really kind of assuming that logging is carbon neutral. And, and that leads to skewed policies in terms of offsets, in terms of seeing forests as areas that can offset the emissions from fossil fuel producers, for example, which is, you know, when, you know, the logging sector itself really needs to be, we need to be reducing emissions from that sector, not treating that sector as something that's going to offset emissions from, from another sector. Yeah. And it's, you know, just the whole thing around, it's been a lot in the news recently about wood pellets and, you know, how Canada is getting hugely into exporting wood pellets to Europe which are burned for heat or energy. And the whole assumption behind wood pellets first is that the wood is just waste wood and that it's not coming from trees themselves, which has been shown to be false. But the other assumption is that the wood is being taken out of the forest in a carbon neutral way. And what we're saying is that's totally not the case. The process of taking wood out of forests, it causes a huge amount of carbon emissions. So if if we can get the government to acknowledge that and accept that, that shifts a whole range of policies and, and will make climate policy by the government more effective and based on the reality of emissions and removals rather than based on myths about so-called carbon neutral logging. For folks who have heard this and, and want to support your work and sort of advocate for the government to do better, uh, how can they get involved and connect in with, this, with all this? Yeah, well, when we, you know, when we launched the report, we also launched a, a public mobilization campaign and, and really, you know, naturecanada.ca is our website and you can find actions that you can take to encourage the government to better protect forests, uh, encourage the government to more accurately recognize the impacts of logging on forests, on the climate issue. You know, we're a network of about 900 nature groups across Canada. If you're part of a, a nature group or a climate group and you want to join that network, um, get in touch with us because yeah, at the end of the day, you know, we can provide the solid research, but it really kind of comes down to people across this country, raising their voice, talking to their members of parliament and demanding that the government adequately protect all our ecosystems, forests, wetlands, grasslands, coast, coastlines, and oceans upon which our survival depends and upon which the survival of millions of species depends. So yeah, I encourage people to get in touch and, and take small actions as you can to protect nature. Awesome. And then as a quick follow-up, how can folks find the report if they want to find that? Yeah, it's, uh, if you go to naturecanada.ca and then you look under our latest news, see our news release for the report, you'll have access to our policy report, which is kind of an easily readable 
eight page document. And then if you're a numbers geek and you want to see where all the numbers came from, there's a technical background under there as well. So encourage people to visit our website at naturecanada.ca. Awesome. Well, it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I'm going to thank you for being here and then I'm going to throw to you and you can sort of give your last other pitch or thing you think that you want to take home message you want people to really leave with as you like. Before I, I do that, just thank you so much, Michael Polanyi, the policy and campaign manager for Nature Canada, focused on nature-based climate solutions. It's been so great to chat with you. Good luck with the report. And yeah, any last thoughts? Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I appreciate people who are listening and people who are concerned about the climate crisis and who are concerned about really the species extinction crisis that's going on. And I know it can be overwhelming and it's a difficult time, I think, for many, but I do feel like we have power together and just talking about the issue and raising your concern in your own personal way with your elected officials is critical and joining with others who also care and educating and taking action both locally and nationally and internationally every little bit helps and i think that it's a great opportunity canada has made some significant commitments they've they're committed to halting and reversing nature loss by 2030 which is pretty transformative but now we have to make them live up to that commitment so Looking forward to continuing to connect and talking again.